One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. This week, We're following up on something that happened in a London hospital a few days ago. The health secretary, Sajid Javid, was visiting and asked the group of NHS staff who were gathered to meet him what they thought of the forthcoming vaccine mandate for NHS staff. It's due to come in in April, and it will mean that medical practitioners who are not vaccinated against COVID will not be able to work in the NHS, period. One doctor, Steve James, a consultant anaesthetist at King's College Hospital, gave an answer that the minister was not expecting. I have not had a vaccination. I did not want to have a vaccination. It's not, the science isn't strong enough. That's your view. And, and, and your views? So that doctor, Dr. Steve James, is here with us in the studio. Hi, Steve. Hi, Freddie. So the purpose of getting you in, and thanks for coming, is to try and really just understand exactly what your position is. So are you an anti-vaxxer? No. What does that mean? That means you're, you, you recognise the importance of vaccinations in other contexts or in this context specifically? You know, to be a, a doctor and be against a certain group of pharmaceuticals would be a bit strange. It would be like being against surgery or being against hospitals. Um, vaccines have done a lot of benefit for a lot of people around the world. The... First of all, there's a, there's a term anti-vaxxers. Yeah, it's it's used in a purely derogatory way. Why shouldn't someone be anti-vaccine if they don't want to have a vaccine? I, I don't have a problem with someone not liking something else or thinking something else is wrong. I I'm not a flat earther, but I don't mind if people want to think the world is flat. Mm. So, in the context of COVID. What is your view about the vaccines then? Because Sajid Javid, the health secretary, wrote in a piece in the Mail on Sunday that just before the clip we've just seen, you told him that 70% of people in your ICU were unvaccinated, the that, COVID patients. Is that true? Did you tell that, him? That's right. Yes, that, that, that's true. Um, and the number of patients who are in the ITU is about a tenth of what it was um, at its peak of the, uh, the pandemic. Um, the majority of patients who we see now, so about 70% of the patients who come in are unvaccinated. Uh, most of them are uh, also elderly, but risk factors. Um, but of the 30% who are vaccinated and come in, they've often got reasons why their bodies didn't mount a good antibody response. Right, because this is quite an important distinction already, isn't it? Because there are a lot of people out there who feel that the COVID vaccines haven't actually been very effective, but you're not part of that group you think that the vaccines have done something quite important undoubtedly undoubtedly the vaccines have made a significant difference we've 
change the way we look after patients because we understand the disease process better. We um, have got other treatments that are available for patients uh, who've got COVID, but the numbers who come through the door in the first place is so much different mm. that I don't think we can account for by a bit of extra mask wearing and a few more lockdowns because there have been lockdowns and not. So the vaccine is the, the factor that's changed there. So is your view then that the vaccines are important for people who are vulnerable to serious disease to be encouraged to, to take? But if you're not vulnerable, that's not important. What's, the, what's your sort of so, position on who should be offered it and who should be encouraged to take it? Well, I'd probably offer it to all adults if I was in charge. The scale of risk and benefit changes uh, as you move through the age ranges and across risk profiles within those age ranges. If you want to give one message, you have a limited ability to, to decide those things. Yeah? So as you give that message, you think, what will induce people to take up the vaccine and bring the overall best benefit? Yeah? I understand that approach. And we've achieved a pretty high level of vaccination in this country, and that's been of great benefit. But if you, if you don't give the whole picture to people, or people don't get the whole picture, yeah, because there's a responsibility on, on, on both sides here. Um, then people may feel disenfranchised. They may have felt like that beforehand. And they may not feel they've really got a nuanced enough set of information for who they are. But you've made the decision not to take the COVID vaccine. Is that a measurement of risk and reward for you? It's in the context of my preferences. So I'm happy to take the risk of having COVID, because I've looked at it, I've thought about it, I've seen who of my friends have had it, what's, what's the likely scenarios to play out. And for myself, I've spent a lot of time looking uh, into health, into all the different aspects of health. And I try, I think I manage a pretty decent job for myself. And so I know my risk profile is really pretty low. So what, I've what, got- What's the risk that you're worried about? Of having COVID? Of the vaccine. Ah, so I, I don't worry about the risk of, of the vaccine in particular, because I don't think about the risk of any medicine I don't want to take. But if, you, if it's a risk-reward decision, you okay. must have reached the point where you decided, for you, given your particular mm. risk profile, okay. you thought the risks outweighed the reward in some way. And you know, you're of young youngish, young enough for it not to be a very threatening disease for you. What's the downside for you of taking so, it? So firstly, is there a benefit for me and is there a benefit for others? Yeah. So is there a benefit for me? Um, well, personally, I now know I've had COVID uh, at some point. I was asymptomatic. I've now got antibodies. But when did you have COVID? I don't know. So I've been testing frequently. Um, there was a period of time, obviously, at the beginning where I wasn't testing. I might have had it then, um, but in all the time I've had, I've been testing, then I've always tested negative. So I just don't know in but which you have window antibodies. I, had, I have antibodies. So if you didn't have antibodies, would you take the vaccine? Well, I've had a few months when I had the opportunity to take the vaccine, didn't know I had antibodies and decided not to. Right. And that's because I think that when the, when the benefit for an individual is likely to be very small, you can give it some time. 
And you can sit and say, well, why not wait a year or two years or three years or five years to see the impact or to see the genuine side effect profile of a medication? So you're worried about side effects then? I mean, it's, it's this question of myocarditis or whatever the potential side effects are. It's, it's, when it comes down to it, even if it's a small chance, is that what you judge to be too big a risk compared to the reward that you might get for it? So again, I don't see a, a potential reward of anything I'm interested in. Um, uh, from the risk side of things, the risk is, is very small of a serious event. Um, but I have, I have got uh, a friend um, who's a family member, is young and had a myocarditis, uh, a colleague at work who had a pericarditis. We've seen three relatively young, healthy people come into King's College Hospital post-vaccination who've died. Mm. So that's not zero, although the chances are very small. So as when you work in a hospital and you, and you see some of those patients, you're seeing a very select group, but they're on your radar. So do you feel like it's because you've had some personal experience of those things that you're more sort of moved by the potential risks and less persuaded just by sort of the risks as described by the official studies? Or Yeah, so, um, I, I, yeah, we're, we're human beings, aren't we? So when we've seen something, we don't forget it because otherwise you go back to the same place where the tiger was and you get eaten or your kids get eaten the next time around. So, yeah, you do remember things that are, that are riskier and you do attribute more weight to that. Is that scientific? Is that scientific? Is there an advantage to remembering where the risk lay? Like I said, with a tiger, yes. I mean, you know, take yourself back to being a caveman and a cavewoman, yeah? Uh, our biology is built around uh, survival yeah? and procreation, yeah? So if you don't remember where the danger was and attribute more weight to that, you're less likely to survive. Is that scientific? I mean, it's, it's intelligent. So let's talk about this question of mandating vaccinations for mm -hmm. NHS staff. That's what you actually voiced concerns about yeah. to the health secretary. The plan is from April, anyone who works in the NHS, if they have refused or have not taken the COVID vaccine, will not be able to work in the NHS anymore, roughly. Pretty much. So it's called a, um, a condition of deployment. So it's not an automatic termination of your contract. Uh, they will try to redeploy you somewhere else. There's not a lot of places where ITU consultants can be redeployed in the hospital. Uh, essentially, I've been told I'd be fired. So what's your objection to that? My objection to being fired? For... No. <laughs> what's your objection to that? I mean, the, the argument goes that the precedent is already there, hepatitis B or uh, other vaccines that medical staff are required to get to be deployed. Mm -hmm. So it's not a new precedent. What's the big deal? Why not just go along okay. with it? So let's look at the hepatitis B um, situation. So before hepatitis B was uh, made a requirement of employment, uh, we had about 20 years of data on its safety. So that's very different to COVID. Secondly, um, hepatitis B is required as a rule by a trust rather than by law. Um, so that means that if a trust were to think this is not in the interest of their staff, to move forwards on this, they could do so. Uh, next, hepatitis B is a serious disease for anyone who gets it. COVID-19, as I've had it, many others have had it, approved 
it's really a severe disease in people who are young and well, and you know, more, much more likely to be a severe disease in the elderly. So the risk profile there is quite different. Uh, it's given explicitly to protect the members of staff uh, who work in a hospital so they don't get hepatitis B. Uh, it's not talked about as being there to protect your patient. Presumably you've taken the hepatitis B vaccine. Yeah. Was that something you had to think deeply about or was that? Maybe as we get older, we think more about what we do. Um, you know, when you're at medical school, um, I think I had my first boosters when I went to the US to be a medical uh, student doing an elective there. Um, and it was, if you don't get it, you're not going to be doing the next bit. Right. So there's also a difference, and that's something I didn't mention before, is if you are required to do something at an entry point, you've got a decision to go in another direction. Um, but if you get asked to do something uh, when you're mid-career, I think I'm still mid-career, um, uh, then where do you go? So there's a, there's a difference. So you were talking about this um, principle of informed consent. Is that the principle that you feel is most egregiously being broken here by, by requiring yeah. people? So, you know, if I as a doctor, I'm going to ask you to have your bodily consent, your, your bodily autonomy respected, yeah? It's a bit odd if I don't have my own respected, isn't it? So if I come to you to make a decision about what you have, and it's a fundamental move away from the paternalistic medical model of now you take this tablet, yeah, or you're going to have this operation, is to respect the patient as an individual, to go to them, to try to understand how they weigh up risks and benefits, to present those risks and benefits clearly to the patient, and try to help them uh, be sure they understand that and then make a decision in light of that. So the same risk-benefit profile will provide different decisions in different patients. Hmm. And that's considered appropriate in, in medical care. And that's not what's happening to you now as an NHS staff member? Precisely. It's, that has been taken away. Someone else has made the decision on the risk-benefit profile and said, you must. So even if I disagree with the risk-benefit profile, yeah. Hmm. Even if we looked at the numbers, yeah, and I said, well, actually, you don't know quite how long the tail is on potential side effects. Uh, we don't know how long the potential tail is on this. You know, if it's twenty years of data, maybe we could be confident the virus is changing. But don't, we don't understand the virus well enough to really have clarity hmm. on those things. Yeah. So that risk-benefit profile is going to be different for different people. So is that? This principle of informed consent, the thing that really upset you. I mean, you've got the, you're standing there in the hospital, health secretary comes to visit. Normally it's, you know, a few polite bits of banter, you shake the hand and then you get back to your job. What was it that made you stand up and voice your concerns to Sajid Javid? When you think about it, what is the thing that got you going most strongly? What got me going the most was knowing that the voices of colleagues are not being heard. I knew that I just had this opportunity to step forwards and say something that thousands of colleagues would want to make a statement on. So it, for the last month or two, colleagues have been winking and nudging at each other and having meetings outside hospital grounds and making small social media groups to support each other because they're worried like hell about losing their jobs and, or being forced to have a vaccine. Yeah. 
Mm. And those people don't know or haven't had the opportunity to have their voices heard. Yeah. So, you know, if there are all these people around, and we're talking about 10% of the NHS who are being threatened with the loss of their livelihood, come on. I mean, their voices should be heard. And the thing is, is that we know that if you say something that is against um, what's called the narrative, yeah, um, that's considered to be against the narrative. So if you say something that isn't, isn't in alignment with the narrative, it's considered against the narrative, it's considered dangerous for society. You've now stepped into that role. I, I mean, I, I asked you just before we um, started the cameras what it was like to go back to hospital today, the first day back at work since you were talked about across all the national media. What was the response like from colleagues? Uh, I understand the position uh, my colleagues. They've worked incredibly hard um, uh, and they really want to see coronavirus um, no longer cause the, the damage it does to people. Um, so I think the, the response was a reflection of that. There's a concern that... Take it I, was a negative response from what you're saying. Some people. So the, the majority of people... Well, the thing is, is that people who hold a negative opinion about you are less likely to come forwards and let you know in general. People who feel close to what you're saying will tend to come to you and tell mm. you those things. Yeah? It's a bit hard to know what the overall opinion is. But I've had colleagues come up and ask for a selfie. Um, I've had uh, a lot of the juniors express support. The families that I've spoken to have said, aren't you the doctor on the telly? Mm. Yeah. And I've said yes. And then they've, they've uh, all expressed support so far. Because there's also been a bit of a backlash, it's got to be said. Yep. Uh, there's been this movement of uh, other consultants and senior doctors going on social media and saying, well, I'm a consultant anaesthetist at XY Hospital and I strongly believe in the vaccine, I've taken it, my kids have taken it. How are we supposed to judge? You say it's, uh, you know, 10%. Um, other people are saying 99% of doctors uh, take the other view. How are we supposed to get a sense of where that support or not really lies? Well, I mean, Clive Kay said on BBC that 10% of his workforce of uh, 14,000 people are not vaccinated. That's not, not my figure, that's the trust's figure. So do you think those people will stick it out? If, if April comes, if this policy remains, do you, you think a large majority of that 10% will actually take the decision to forego their job rather than take this back? So from 120,000, which was the figure published, I believe, by the government at the time they announced it in November, um, they reckon probably 20 or 30,000 had already been vaccinated, but the trusts didn't have evidence of the vaccination status. So there was a group form called NHS 100K based on the idea that there's 100,000 people out there at present. Some of those people are not going to have an alternative and not wish to explore that. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Alternative and they are probably get, uh, alternative employment and they are going to have a vaccine uh, under coercion, essentially. Uh, that's not a good thing for those staff. What about you? Um, if push comes to shove, no, I'm not going to have the vaccine. No. So you would lose your job yeah, rather than I'll lose my job. Why? What? Why? You know, you talk about risk reward. Mm. I'm interested there because clearly the risks of losing your job, yeah, might change that calculus. But you obviously feel so strongly about it, and this is what I think mystifies a lot of people. Why some people feel so strongly about this issue that they're literally prepared to forego their career to defend it. Explain to us how you could feel so strongly about it. I'm a human being more than I'm a worker. Um, uh, I don't believe I'll starve if I uh, don't have a job in the NHS. Um, I think... So you'd go private, essentially. No, I won't be allowed to go private in the UK. I see. So, uh, well, not, not in the UK. So the rules are about NHS England, not about Wales, not about Scotland. Uh, the Republic of Ireland have got different rules. Um, so you'd move? But move. Wow. Yeah. What do you say to people who are worried that even though you might have a reasonable position um, and it's carefully thought through and you're an educated person and all the rest of it, there has been a big sort of anti-vax movement, mm -hmm. um, some of which is based on perfectly defensible principle and some of it has contained kind of scare stories that aren't true. There was the MMR vaccine. Um, controversy a few years ago are you worried that you expressing what you are today can be used by campaigners who are trying to spread fear more generally i mean that that's i think it's a reason why a lot of people might feel that you shouldn't have said anything because yeah. even though it might be reasonable it can be misused yeah um but i don't agree on balance that that's the bigger danger i think the bigger danger is the conversation not being had um, so I think that it's reasonable for a period of time when you've 
want to get a vaccine out in this situation to have a singular message. But as the benefit for society of increased vaccination goes down, at a certain point, people are asking questions. And the percentage of people or the, the minority of people in the UK adults who haven't had the vaccine, please, let's give them some credit. They've thought about it. They've thought about it. And potentially it's a reflection of uh, information from uh, anti-vax campaigners. There's a, small, there's a small chance of that, but let's please respect the ability of each individual adult in this country to think for themselves. The vast majority of people can think for themselves. This new variant, the Omicron variant, is much more transmissible, supposedly, and certainly is better at overcoming vaccines than earlier variants. Do you think the so-called pro-social argument, the idea that one should take a vaccine for the benefit of wider society because it makes the overall level of infection come down, do you think that is blown out the water by the Omicron variant? If people look around them, they can see breakthrough infection in multiple vaccinated people. Most of us know friends who are multiply vaccinated and got Omicron over Christmas. So we should not look away from what we can see. Um, doesn't mean that we should completely run away from uh, vaccines or Omicron and say, oh, it's all, all changing now. You've still got to look and still got to gather data. But the data on vaccination has suggested for quite a while now uh, that it's not really making a, a big impact. In August last year, Public Health England stated that um, being fully vaccinated is going to do little to stop the spread uh, mm. of the virus in infected people. So we, we've known that. That's, that's the government's publication. What if it's little but still something? I think okay. people will think that. You know, you're in a, this responsible position. You're coming in, into contact with vulnerable people all mm -hmm. the time. Even if it's only a marginal effect, maybe you should be required to make that contribution because who knows, it could have an important effect for someone you come in contact with. Okay, so there's a couple of things here. One is that when you get uh, a vaccine, your immune system is very strongly challenged initially. But if we look at, for example, your antibody levels, not your entire immune system, but, but an important aspect of it, then those antibody levels drop off very rapidly. Okay? If you've got natural immunity, the antibody levels start off lower, but they wane at a much slower pace. Okay? And then you've got people who haven't got antibodies, or haven't been infected at all. Um, so after um, three months, I said two months in the interview, but that was wrong. It was three months. Um, the protection from the uh, Oxford vaccine is equivalent to no previous exposure and no vaccination. And the confidence intervals, so where the people who wrote the study are, are confident the range is, is between two and four months. So that's the effect on transmission. That's the effect on whether transmission. You're gonna, whether you might catch and pass on the disease, not the effect on how ill you get. Yes. So it's, that's about transmission. Um, and so if you imagine a sort of, you know, curve sloping down towards um, equivalent to vaccine, um, towards unvaccinated, yeah, then actually, because it's a curve, you've, you've got to be further back than halfway to have half that extra protection. That means you've got to be vaccinated probably every four to six weeks in order to maintain a significant level of difference, even a small but significant level of difference. 
What's wrong with that? Have you, have you, are, you, are you not happy to be vaccinated every four <laughs> to six weeks? No, I'm not. I've also got friends and, and colleagues who've, who've attributed other minor problems to the vaccine, you know, fatigue, changes. I don't think we've got good, safe, historic evidence for taking multiple vaccine doses on a program like that. The other thing that's, that's, that's really important is um, what does a patient want from their doctor? Doctors think that patients want doctors with loads of knowledge. And doctors worry about having enough knowledge and being professional enough and all these kinds of things. And the list of things that doctors think patients want are quite different from what patients say they want. So patients want a doctor who's compassionate, uh, who's going to listen to them, who's going to speak clearly and honestly to them and weigh up the risk and balance of things. So as an individual, you have to decide what's the best way of delivering good care as a doctor. And all of these NHS frontline professionals, they're professionals. They are professionals at caring and at doing the best they can for their patients. So they are making assessments on what's the best thing for me to do to be able to overall give the best care I can for the patient. So that involves your, your hygiene when you, when, you, when you meet a patient, the time you spend with the patient. It involves whether you wear um, a PPE, uh, whether you take the time to, to look into the patient's notes, whether you take the time to mm. uh, do all these other factors and, and just you. to be present with the patient. And that's a much bigger picture than, than but just... So, but why does not having the vaccine make you a better doctor? To the no, patient? it doesn't. But it's, if I'm not true to my own beliefs, I'm not a good example of someone who's making the risk-benefit analysis for myself hmm. and deciding on that. And I think that when you're with another human being and you're, you know... Th Doctors and nurses are in incredibly private spaces with patients. They are in extremely unusual, often scary situations. They're worried. And, and we come very close and, and share things with patients that you, you don't share often with other people. And so that, that ability to um, be genuine with another human being it requires you, I, I believe, to, uh, to know yourself and to be present in yourself. So you feel actually that by taking a vaccine that you didn't want to take, you would in some way compromise your integrity or compromise your ability to look patients in the eye and feel like a good doctor. Yeah. If I can't look myself in the eye, it's going to be difficult to look patient in the eye. So I'm coming back here to what we should actually do. Yeah. Steve, because Please. we've got Omicron. It looks like it's very transmissive, even amongst vaccinated people. Are you saying that the policy should be offer it to everybody, encourage it, the vaccine, I mean, offer it, encourage it for old and vulnerable people and just leave it at that? Or what, what's, the, what's the Steve James okay. so policy? The, the problem for society is the people who get sick from um, COVID-19. That, that's, the, that's what we we're trying to change. So if you look at the, that population of people who are getting sick from COVID-19, 
you can look at people who, who get very sick and die, and you can look at those who get moderately sick and those who are less sick. And what we need to do is to be open and clear about who is getting sick. Well, according and, to you, it's unvaccinated people, at least 70% of your ICU patients. Yes. And I have no problem with that. That is the fact. That is the situation. So, but they are not people who look like you or have a health profile like yourself or like myself. So I don't understand why the message is everybody take it and let's force some people to be an example when actually the people who are most going to have a problem are the elderly, are the vulnerable, are those who've got significant comorbidities. So when, when would that line start with you? It's a combination of factors. So the, the fit and well 60-year-old is at a much, less, uh, much lower risk profile than the obese 40-year-old. But a fit and well 60-year-old, would you still not advise them to take the vaccine? Or I know it's all an individual case, but the government has to have a policy ultimately. Yeah. Are you saying that a 60-year-old, health, otherwise healthy person, should take the vaccine or not? We have data in this country. And we should be presenting to people that data in an accessible form that shows people, let's say, the risk profile of dying from COVID for different age groups and for different levels of health status. And then also with that, in each box basically, you've got to be able to say what's the risk of dying from the vaccine in that age group. It cannot be too hard for the government to create a website where you on a drop-down menu, say, this is my age group, yeah? These are my risk factors. This is this. Click. It then says, your chance of dying from COVID is one in 5,000. I'll be more than happy to help put it together if they want to do that. Your chance of dying from the vaccine is this, based on the data in this country. And then let people say, oh, actually, look. For me, it's very clear for many people that it's going to be more favourable. So the benefit is going to be greater than the risk. When you know you've got a pretty individualised set of information, you can then make that choice. Choice. You're not being forced to make it. But when you know that your risk of dying from COVID is, is one in a hundred, if you get it. And your risk of having the vaccine and having a problem from that is one in 10 million. Yeah, or one in, it's not quite so high as that. Yeah, if you look at the VAERS database in the US, it's about, as a population, about one in 45,000. Most of those deaths occur in the elderly, so we haven't got information that delineates that at present, as far as I'm aware. So the risk of dying from the vaccine is going to be very low also in that age group. People should be able to weigh those things up. And then the thing is, is that the people who aren't vaccinated at present, why not find some way to encourage those people to come to the medical professional and discuss those things together in the light of their views? You know, 
you could do that with NHS staff. You could say every patient, every member of staff who's not vaccinated needs to kind of have a meeting with their line manager and have the risks and benefits presented to them. Mm. And then they make their decision on that. I think probably, I'm speculating now, but I guess even Sajid Javid and government ministers would probably quite like the plan you suggest in an ideal world, some sort of perfectly tailored individual risk profile and everyone can. But ultimately, they've got to have a policy. This pandemic has caused such a lot of disruption. You've witnessed the pressure on your own hospital wards. People are exhausted. 70% of people in ICUs are unvaccinated. So they just say, sorry, your particular you know, risk profile and the perfect way of doing it is not available. It's not an option. We need to be a bit more rough. Yeah. And that's the decision they've made. Do you, do you understand that? I understand it, but I believe the, 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 the value in that method has waned. And now we're at a point where the simplicity of the message is actually starting to frustrate the population. Do you think it's a backlash against it seems sort of propagandistic? It's coming. That sort of sentiment is building. So, you know, if you take NHS workers, then population knows that we were clapped, you know, a year and a half ago. And they now know we're being sacked. We're going to be sacked. So who wouldn't ask questions about why that transformation? Um, how does this process protect the NHS? How do you really protect the NHS by losing a large chunk of your staff? Okay. So there are Questions that, oh, another big question is what's the, what's the data on natural immunity versus unvaccinated versus vaccinated? I don't hear the message. So you so, think information around natural immunity, information about, around potential risks to the vaccine is not being made properly available? Yes, I, I, I do think that. I do think the message of simplicity of, have the booster, have the jabs, is a message that works for a large part of the population. But for the population who are not taking a vaccine, you need a different approach because your approach hasn't worked. Final question for you, Steve. Do you think it's going to happen? Because I have a suspicion that come April, this policy might be reconsidered. There's always a reason when governments plan to do something long in the future because it gives them a chance to reconsider. Do you think you speaking out and the effect of Omicron, where it's so transparently not especially reduced transmission-wise by these vaccines, do you think it's going to change? Do you think you will actually lose your job? I'm a very hopeful, hopeful person. Um, I do see the possibility for change. I do see Omicron giving the possibility for a delay and a review. Um, I do see the possibility for, for trusts to contact the government and say, we're worried about losing our staff. And that seems to be a bigger problem than whether they're vaccinated or not, because we don't, we're not really worried about transmission from, from staff to um, patients. So you think you will likely be a practicing consultant in critical care still at the end of April? No, I don't think the chances are better than 
but I'm gunning for it. Thank you so much for coming in Cheers, and buddy. explaining yourself and your points of view. This was Unheard, and we were talking to Steve James from King's College Hospital. Thanks for watching. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.